Rural Futures, the podcast where we connect thought leaders and doers at the intersection of technology and what it means to be human. Every episode, we talk with entrepreneurs, researchers, and achievers to create impact for generations to come. Welcome back to the Rural Futures Podcast. I'm Caitlin Ideas, producer of the show, and in today's episode, I'm interviewing our host, Dr. Connie Reimers-Hild, who serves as Interim Executive Director and Chief Futurist at the Rural Futures Institute at the University of Nebraska. So Dr. Connie, welcome to your own show. <laughs> Thanks, Caitlin. It's kind of fun to be on the other end of the mic. I feel Hi. like, you know, I'm on the spot now. <laughs> I want to start out by providing our listeners with a bit of context and background about you. So can you please share with us that highlight reel of your personal and professional life that has led you to this point of leading a major institute at the University of Nebraska? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I um, have been at the university for quite some time. And people that have listened to this know I was a first-generation college student who really had no intention of ever getting a master's degree, let alone a PhD. And luckily I had some great mentors who helped me understand that you could actually get paid to go to graduate school. Didn't know that. That's the reason my master's degree is in entomology. And also then thinking about what that looked like next for me was really important. You know, I really was interested in the science of people um, and how people really showed up and interacted with the world. So my PhD is in, in human sciences with a focus on leadership and really have studied what it means for people to be entrepreneurial and innovative before people could actually spell entrepreneurial, which was a long time ago. You know, it used to be like no one even was searching it before Google. It was, it was crazy. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it really is kind of a funny thing because when my first company actually was called Entrepreneurial U, And I had to switch the name to Wild Innovation because no one could spell entrepreneurial. So nobody could find the the company. But, you know, as a futurist, that's what you have to get pretty comfortable with, I think, is realizing you're about 10 years ahead. (laughs) So after getting my PhD, and I actually worked as a faculty member in the Department of Entomology um, here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln on East Campus before um, going into Extension, where then I worked with businesses I worked with communities and I worked with a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders um, on personal and professional development. I'm a certified professional coach and a certified futurist because those pieces really go together. It's great to do the strategic foresight in futuring with companies or even people as individuals, but really to change what we need to change, make the changes we want and desire, the coaching helps with that piece. I've been married for, it'll be 20 years this year, so I'm super jazzed about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm really, I'm excited. Wonderful, uh, man. I, I wasn't older when I got married and had kids. It, it was a long um, vetting process for me in the dating world, I would say. <laughs> but I, I still think that's the best advice to give anyone. You want a great future, find a great partner. Um, we both have full-time careers have the business, but we also had, we started out with two wiener dogs and now have two kids that are nine and 11 and really have been just the joys of our life. And so, you know, folding this all together has been a lot of fun because I think what's happened is while we, we talk about the inability to balance, I think having to do that in real life really helps you help leaders better because you get it. You're sort of having to figure it out every day yourself. You've already brought up futuring and strategic foresight, but we need to dig into this a little bit more because it's a bit mind boggling. 
that we still get asked if strategic foresight is, quote, a real thing, and if a futurist is something people know about. Um, but we do get these questions, so let's clear it up. Can you share with us your definition of a futurist? I can, and I will go on record to say, yes, strategic foresight is a discipline. Other universities and colleges actually teach it. Um, I'm certified through the University of Houston, and we had Dr. Andy Hines on, who is actually the lead person in that academy. They teach it on campus. They teach it online. They have full-blown bachelor, master degree programs, um, and many places focused on it. And that is really important because really strategic foresight is a discipline that futurists use to help leaders, people, organizations, communities really take a look at what's happening, not just now, but into the future, what's possible and what's probable, and then helping them make decisions, better decisions, so they're better prepared for the future, but also in a position to create the future that they want. So talk to us a little bit more about um, that program that you went through at the University of Houston. What types of people were you were in your program with you? It was an amazing program, and I had wanted to go through it for years. I've been a member of the World Future Society, presented at that conference, published you know, within that sphere for quite some time before actually going on and taking their certificate program. So there were people from a, all over the world and all different industries there. So you had people from Clorox, Ford, the United States Library Association, Lowe's. A lot of these major companies have really invested in the space, realizing that their business model of today isn't going to propel them into a successful future. They need to change, but they need to anticipate what those changes might be to make the right decisions so that they're innovating in the right way. I was actually the only person in my class that was from a university. And I found that to be very interesting considering sort of the huge transition um, that universities are in right now, along with retail, healthcare, every other space, right? You know, I was just in Lincoln, Nebraska here. I tried to go make a return at Sears. They're closing. And it's not like we didn't know this was happening. A, Sears has talked about this for a long time. We've seen the, the just prolific growth of online retail. Well, why do you need to go to that store anymore? And so it's really interesting to me, the companies that have chosen to invest in that and really pivot and evolve and the ones that have not. Now, I have to ask the classic Dr. Connie question. What do you do to keep your futurist mind fresh? You know, I love to watch sci-fi movies. Like, I'm a crazy big fan of sci-fi because, and I always have been. I mean, I think that's the other thing about being a futurist. I've been a futurist since I was pretty young. I just didn't know what it was at that time. I could see what was going to happen, and I could put really odd things together. It's something that's very natural for me, but it's, it's hard to always explain and put into words, you know, what that looks like for others and how they can benefit from, from that knowledge. And I think it's, it's staying sharp. It's a lot of reading. I am a huge learner, um, audiobooks, especially with all the driving I do. So I'm also a huge fan of Singularity University. I just actually finished up some coursework to keep myself fresh last year with that group. And it was all online. Again, people from all over the world, from all industries. This time there were some folks from higher education, which was great. But, you know, really thinking about how do we exponentially grow what's happening. I listen to a lot of podcasts as well. 
and yesterday I was listening to one that talked about 5G. Like, what should we be expecting with 5G that we're not doing right now? And the 5G will be something, once people are connected to it, it'll be like what electricity was. They used the example of what electricity was to a washing machine. It was life-changing, right? It's not one piece of clothing anymore, but it's also, we can own a lot more clothes. We can buy them. We can wash them faster. We have clothes now for everything. Yeah, you've already kind of promoted some of the episodes that we've had with guests. I mean, if this conversation is sparking your curiosity as a listener, we have more that you can dig into. So episode eight featured Dr. Andy Hines, who leads the University of Houston Strategic Foresight Graduate Certificate Program. And I'd also suggest episode one with Brian Alexander, higher ed futurist. Episode 13 with Thomas Fry, just prolific leading futurist uh, nationally, globally. And episode 16 with Deb Westfall, who's the CEO of Toffler Associates. And we have more coming. So in season three, just continuing to bring these futurists together. Because when you said, I bring these disparate ideas together, yeah. I mean, that's what you've done here at the Rural Futures Institute. Tying rural to strategic foresight is a completely different conversation than than has been had. And I think even talking to these futurists, they're interested in this too. And they're seeing, wow, yeah, we do need to have this conversation of what the future holds for rural. And then obviously what that means for everyone. I think just, you know, having the connection to other futurists who maybe see things differently than I do, or had different experiences, have worked with different companies, just broadens the perspective of what's possible. And I think rural is one of those areas that's been sort of left out of the equation when it comes to futuring strategic foresight, technology. You know, when I was recently on a panel in Paris, the women's conference really focused on the future of cities. The reason I was there, um, because it was because of our partnership with Microsoft, but also rural just isn't represented. Like they're like, we need somebody that has this rural voice and knowledge to talk about the future of cities because I'm like, it's not just cities, right? It is that rural urban connection that that's really what makes the world work. And sometimes we don't recognize that a lot of those fundamental pieces of everything we consume come from rural areas. And even though in many ways that's getting more automated in many ways, it's also not in in many ways, it's also still hand labor. So when you think about coffee, for example, chocolate that is produced in rural areas and it's produced by people living in those areas and i think that's we forget the human element sometimes about you know what are those people doing in their world that affects our world but also the cool innovation and the strength that our rural people around the world in the us in nebraska really bring to the table and what i love about the podcast and our work at the rural futures institute And, you know, in particular, your work, Caitlin, I think in the communication space has really lifted up that voice for rural. We need, we have more work to do, you know, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's no, no small job, but it's exciting to see that, you know, now we have actual futures coming to us saying, Hey, can I be part of this conversation? I would really like to contribute my work to this space. And that's, that's a great, I think that's a great accomplishment, but I'm also excited to see what that can bring to our state and beyond.
I want to kind of transition into the future of the Rural Futures Institute now. You assumed the interim executive director role at RFI um, in July, and you've really challenged our team to narrow our scope and be very focused on the type of impact we want to make. And you've written in, you wrote an introductory letter in July, and then you also just had a recent op-ed, both of which are available on our website, <laughs> if anyone would like to read them in full. But can you share with us a bit about your vision for the Institute going forward? I really like to think about it through the strategic foresight lens about what's possible, what's probable, and then how can we continue to grow? But that takes focus. I mean, I think that's where, especially in terms as, you know, as we have had a large budget cut, and also we've lost quite a bit of capacity in terms of people. I think sometimes that has gotten lost a bit in, in some of the conversation. What is it now that we can do? What can we specialize in and make the wider impact in Nebraska and the world? Students have been a huge part of that and will continue to be a huge part of that. And getting students into communities, our rural communities with those leaders is a huge, I think, contribution we've made in the past. But we've got to measure the impact of that and continue to think about how do we partner and scale that up and change it in the future. And really, as we've developed this nexus, what we call the Rural Futures Nexus of students, communities, and faculty coming together, making sure we're bringing those pieces together in a thoughtful way to elevate what's happening in those communities. So taking what's happening at the university, connecting it with communities, but also what's happening in communities and connecting that back to the university so that the university very much knows the innovation happening there, but also what we should be doing here at the university to help those communities. We are also quite proud of the Rural Futures Institute student serviceship program that was developed by University of Nebraska faculty in 2013 through RFI funding. It has continued every year and grown in scope, placing 60-some students and 30-some rural communities to work, serve, and live. And last year, we had our largest class of students serving 11 communities, two of which were broader communities of practice. So that was an exciting evolution of the program. Without giving too much away, can you share with our listeners the evolution of the program we have been working on this past six months? We're working on kind of pivoting what we've called our rural service ship program a bit. I'd love for that to come out as more of a fellows approach with students in those communities and with our communities, community leaders. For the student piece and the community piece and the university piece, we've really looked at inclusion through Dr. Helen Fagan's work of becoming a part of that you know, is can that theoretical foundation of inclusion then lead to more economic impact, workforce development, greater good for those communities in terms of well-being, but also let's bring the strategic foresight in with it and the communications piece in with it. So Singularity University, who I just talked about, when I took my courses there last for professional development last year, communications was a huge part of that. Because it's not enough to just have the foresight. You need the action, but you also need to communicate the difference it's making and where you intend to go. And that's, that's what we're working on here at the Rural Futures Institute. 
Okay, so let's get specific to on the Nebraska Thriving Index. So this is a print and online tool that we'll be rolling out in the summer that will provide economic developers, local elected officials, and community leaders with economic and quality of life indicators to identify thriving and lagging regions. And the point of this is that with that information, that's really comparing them to comparable peers, um, they can make some strategic future-focused investments. So what was the inspiration behind this project and how did it come to be the partners involved? I'm really excited about the Thriving Index. You know, we started seeing these barometers for Omaha and Lincoln here in Nebraska and also sister cities to Lincoln and Omaha. And Dr. Eric Thompson at the University of Nebraska Lincoln's Bureau of Business Research, they are the ones that have led these types of measures up for Lincoln and Omaha. And so as we started to look at them, you know, now they have five years of data and they use these a lot of times in economic development to attract new companies or even use just to say, here's where we're at. Here's where we're doing well. Here's where we need to put some resources. You know, they really use it, I think, in many ways to help form their future and a lot of the decisions around that. And we didn't have anything for rural that resembled that. And so we talked with Eric and he has a team, also Dr. Bree Doherty at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, who's really helped us form this up and think through this. And, and then we worked with a number of partners through the Community Vitality Initiative and Nebraska Extension, and there's a whole team involved. And you can find that information on our website as well. But to look at the landscape in rural. So the economic aspects of it, but also overall well-being. Because what we do know is that population can't be the metric, right? So we get charged with this a lot and people ask us, well, how are you gonna change the trajectory of rural Nebraska? You know what, that's a very complicated question and I get the intent of the question. The population is incredibly important, the attraction and retention of people, et cetera, et cetera. But it's way more complicated than just using population as a metric. What we do know is that the quality of life, especially in places like rural Nebraska, is good. But we don't know how good, how great. We don't know what's thriving and what's not thriving necessarily in those areas. And a lot of it is very regional, not just a specific community. And so the index will really help display this in regions. And it'll be a tool that people can actually use. And it'll be great to get some initial data put together, an initial tool put together that people can take a look at to assess their region, compare it to other regions. But the long-term goal would be that this index will occur over time. And so we can start seeing those trends over time. We can start seeing, you know, what needs additional help or where places are thriving. And then also if we can expand that to other states, how does Nebraska compare? And what can we do about it? I mean, I think that's the other thing as a university too, is for us to have this information to say, hey, this is where we're making a contribution, but this is where we could do more. So you hold your doctorate in leadership, as you've shared, and in episode 10 of the show, you shared your definition of leadership, and you said, it is the ability to lead one's own life while bringing out the best in others and making a positive contribution to the future. 
You went on to say, I believe in championing the concept of self-leadership. Don't let others lead you where you don't want to go. We must recognize and develop our inner leaders to truly thrive. And that episode aired on August 3rd, one month into your leadership role here at RFI. So what have you learned since then? For me, that still holds true. My whole coaching philosophy and model is built on developing your inner leader. I am really not a big fan of one person having a giant vision and everybody else like get on board and go towards it. I think that worked in the industrial era. It does not work in the current era that we are in. And I think it holds true even more so for me today than it did even a few months ago, you know, and I've been in leadership roles before at the Kimmel Education Research Center, for example, other places that I've been, this is a little different in that it's a higher level within the university, but it also we have a very small team. And for me, that means that I need people on our team to really embrace that inner leader. I can't afford to micromanage anyone and I, I'm not even good at it. But I also think this is what's important in those communities. It's important to the faculty and staff that we work with here. We need to bring the best out in everybody And that's really, as leaders, I feel like that's part of the role, right? It's not just assigning tasks and delegating, you know, that's management. But leadership requires a little more than that. And I think in many ways, after going through a difficult situation, you know, like we have here at the Rural Futures Institute, or, you know, many of our communities have gone through, it's coming out of that sort of like the phoenix. (laughs) I like that image. It's flying again, you know, I mean, that's kind of how I see it is, You know, you're going to go through those difficult times and it's the, what have you learned and how did it make you stronger? And, and I think that's, you know, kind of where I'm at at this point with a lot of things. And even our interview with Dr. Howard Liu from the med center, we touched a lot on this. There's a, there's a lot of mental and spiritual and physical capacity that has to go in that. And I think that's all part of that inner leader, right? And shift gears when you need to. I mean, we had to make some hard decisions. We had to pass things like, the Connecting Young Nebraskans CYN program, that's amazing. And I think there's such a great group of young leaders around our state, but you know what? Our partners with the Nebraska Community Foundation can do wonderful things with that. And rather than just cut it and see it die, we've really wanted to trim it from our branches, but see it grow. And I think that's the part of leadership that sometimes gets a little difficult and people can get a little judgmental around it, but you know, For us to grow and for us to help serve people in a better way, we have to be good at who we are and good with who we are. We have to lead who we are and show up in an authentic way. Some of these things we have to let go of and let blossom beyond who we are here at the Rural Futures Institute. Okay, so to say that fall 2018 was a whirlwind is a little bit of an understatement. Where all did you go? I'm trying to remember, you know, because it was, it got to be a blur because Japan and Paris were the big international trips, but I made several trips out to Kearney and went to Ohio as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, and I was feeling that. I, I was getting a little tired there by the end. I mean, it was great because I think we know that the demand for the work we're doing here and for the partnerships we've created is growing and that's great to see. And now it's like, again, how do we continue to grow and thrive ourselves through this so that we can continue to serve in a prolific way? But yeah, I was in Ohio working with some agricultural leaders and connecting with them around 
you know, the rural future and their own business future. The agricultural landscape is changing at a very rapid clip. How do they as leaders continue um, to evolve and change and how can we connect with them here at the Institute? That's really important. And then I was in Kearney, I worked with the Nebraska Rural Health Association, keynoted their annual conference, but also connected with some great leaders that attended that conference there. Very excited to continue to work in that space. And then 10 days in Japan as part of a partnership we have um, with the Japan Society. And this has been a great relationship that's been ongoing, a project that's been ongoing. We hosted a number of Japanese leaders here last year in 2017. Then the exchange was to take U.S. leaders um, to Japan. I was one of those leaders that was selected from the U.S. to go and learn about what's happening there. What you learn is that a lot of what's happening there is happening here. I mean, this whole rural conversation is, while we focus our, want to focus our impact in Nebraska, there's a whole national and international need for us to all come together around this and find some really bold, innovative solutions to what's happening and capture the creativity already happening. Um, and after that, eight days later that I was flying into Paris to present at an international women's forum really focused on how do we help empower women to create a better future. And again, you know, that was part of our relationship with Microsoft. So a lot of the relationships that we've had and have been forming are really starting to grow. And we want to see more happen from that. And we want rural to be at the table. You know, aging is a huge issue in both the area of the women and empowerment, but also in places like Japan. And this aging is a global issue that we see, especially in our rural areas. And so I think just the learnings from some of that have been huge. And I've been able to bring a lot of that back to Nebraska, which is great. So let's dig into Japan a little bit more. It is an acute example of hyper-urbanization. So until the early 2000s, you know, globally more people lived in villages and small towns and cities, um, but population in large cities continues to rise, while the opposite is true in rural areas. This is especially true in Japan. People are leaving their rural homes to go to Tokyo, for example, and today 92% of the Japanese live in large cities. And it's causing an influx of abandoned land throughout the rural areas of the country. And also just some concern. I mean, I've read articles on the millennial generation is really concerned about their responsibility. I mean, some of these rural communities have, are a thousand years old in Japan. And it's going to be under their watch that they die. You know, I mean, this is really kind of an issue. So you wrote a paper for the Japan Society, and that will be published soon through them. But tell us some of your key observations that you kind of wrote about in that, in that paper. Yeah, so one of the areas I wanted to really examine while I was there is this, this issue of gender inequity, because it's, it's a pretty big one. And it's a big one in rural areas in Nebraska. We've heard that through our rural forums, that we need to empower um, people and be more inclusive in our leadership, but that includes gender as a huge part of that. You know, one of the, my takeaways was that women need representation, their own voice, and economic independence in Japan. And that is especially true in their rural areas. Uh, many times, you know, even at meetings, men are still speaking for women. I mean, we see that here. I see that. Geez, even as the executive director for a major institute, that still happens. And I find myself having to, like, interrupt people or just keep talking through their, their attempt to interrupt me at a table. It drives me crazy. 
but it still happens. And so this is, this is a just, it's a, it's a problem, a cultural problem globally. Um, but also the Japanese relationship with food is very unique. And I think it has the potential to drive a larger share of their economy, but I think there's a lot we could learn, you know, from them around the connection with food and agriculture and the way that it's so beautifully represented. They have like fan clubs for their rice and their fish, people in urban areas that are, are selling their products for them and, you know, doing social media for them and really have actually become fans of how the food is produced. They also have things like rice compacts where they actually will contract with people living in places like Tokyo to buy rice from rural areas. And then in case something bad happens in Tokyo, like, you know, tsunami, they can actually move and go stay at those rural areas and have a safe place to live. I just think those are so creative to how to engage people in rural areas, even if they don't physically live there. And also Japan's population appears to be less dependent on traditional healthcare and more focused on health. I think this was especially prevalent as I, I actually was involved in a tea party with elderly ladies in a rural village. And the thing that it really showed me was these women have chosen to get together. They've chosen to get together because it helps them get out of their houses and to create that social bond they need for their health and their well-being, you know, once a week. But they have fun. I mean, they're having, they're having great food. It's homemade food, very healthy food, green and, and black tea, and they're laughing. But it's also just a great example of people taking ownership and that inner leadership of how do I want to experience this life? Now, I also want to go back to the Women's Forum Global Conference. So correct me if I'm wrong, but were you the only rural perspective person there? Was there like anybody else? Nobody else that I know of, no. Okay. I, I was pretty much it. And I think the great thing is after that conference, then I was con contacted by other conferences, global conferences, to bring in this rural perspective. You know, because people just, they're curious, but they don't know. Right, right. So with that kind of influential platform, with leaders from across corporations, governments, nonprofits, what calls to action did you share with this opportunity? Well, one, we need to plan for both underpopulation and overpopulation of physical communities. You know, there is an absolute interconnectedness between urban and rural that we can no longer ignore. And our global ecosystem must support more than just people. You know, as we move forward with the Rural Futures Institute, one of the things we've really focused on is the rural-urban collaboration, not divide. We talked about this with Dr. Tim Griffin from Tufts University. You know, we really need to ask better questions and do better research around this because too often we're focused on the, the divide and not on the interconnectedness. And we need to understand that more, I think, so people value both rural and urban in a different way. And number two is that we need to provide access to health, well-being, and vitality for all. You know, what does it really look like for every person on the planet to have great places to live, clean water, sanitation, transportation, sustainable energy, activity and proper nutrition and how do we provide access to health well-being and vitality for all people in the future you know this was a big focus of the singularity university coursework that i took i mean we can start thinking about these things now because not only do we have the technology but we have the science and i think we have the will of many people to try and figure out answers to these big questions 
Number three, advancements in technology and science are changing expectations and demands of humans. You know, we have demographic shifts and that's recognized, but we have psychographic shifts as well and sometimes that is unrecognized. For example, I just expect that I can order something on my phone and it's there about the next day or two days and I live in a rural area. You know, and as you're more remote and rural, I know that might be a little bit different and I get it, but this will continue to change, right? I mean, so as we have, for example, more 3D printing in the future, we don't even have to order. We can just print it in our home, but we need to be connected in order to do that. And so when you think about the internet of things, artificial intelligence, robotics, mobile technologies, intelligent transportation, these are interwoven factors that are happening that we can really, I think, embrace in rural if we want to, but also we can lead the way in rural if we want to. So when I think about autonomous vehicles and our aging population and the need to, for people to get to still a healthcare facility, why not create the intersection of that and let us be the place where places like Tesla, Microsoft, et cetera, come and do some research. Yes, please, Google. Let's see what we can do. But that gets really to the fourth point of broadband and high-speed connectivity, which will be critical components of future communities, both physically and digitally. Now, this requires a systems approach to infrastructure. How many physical structures do we really need at this point? Again, we see a lot of these physical stores closing because you know what? You just simply don't need to go there. And honestly, for people like me and many others, shopping is not really that exciting. And if you don't find what you want at the price you want, with all the selection that you can get on your phone or your computer, why are you there? I mean, if it's not an experience of some sort, people aren't gonna do it. So should more of this money be invested in virtual opportunities? Kind of the, one of the last things I want to hit on is just the insights we've had from doing this podcast so far. So we've had 20 episodes and we're definitely seeing some themes emerge. We published a white paper about season one entitled The Future of Leadership, Technology, and Rural Urban Collaboration, which is available at ruralfutures.nebraska.edu slash podcast. But season two added some more specifics to these main themes. What stood out most to you? Well, I think the fact that there's a lot of great stories out there and there are stories to tell and we need to tell them well. But we also need to understand the elements of those stories and how they could be replicated beyond that example. When you think about Handelbin in O'Neill, Nebraska, two young guys who decided to create copper mugs from copper in one of their dad's shops because he works in refrigeration and now turning that into a business. And their website is so amazing. But not only that, I mean, they are engaging the community. They're hiring people. The community has been a huge part of their success and they, they're telling about that and the importance of that. They're also not shy about saying they've needed the internet. You know, they want to empower more women to work with their company and help them grow. And I think that's really such a great story, but what are the lessons and then how can others learn and be successful with that same sort of model? You know, empowering women, as I've talked about, you know, so critical. If we want communities to thrive, women have to thrive as well because they give back to their families and communities. But also we've really noticed that a lot of people don't choose to define themselves as a leader. It's like they're scared to say, yeah, I'm a leader. But I think in some ways that's because there's still this old, sort of idea that the leader's the CEO in a corner office and can be a bit of a jerk, right? Like that just tells everybody what to do. 
And so I think as we sort of continue to evolve for to self-leadership and people wanting to take control and, and empower their own future, I think that will change. And we've always kind of acknowledged that people don't self-define as a leader, but the types of people we're bringing on this show and they're looking at our, like our preform and they're like, well, I don't know that I should have an opinion on like leadership style. And you're just so surprised to hear them say that. It's like, look at what you're doing. Look at how you've brought people together around your ideas or look at the type of thought leader. So I just, that one has stood out to me too. Okay. So obviously we're really excited for season three, which will debut in February. We've got a bunch of interviews scheduled for this for this month, and that'll be with futurist researchers and rural mavericks still. But can you talk about a few of the topics that we were really eager to address? You know, technology will continue to be a huge theme. I think that's just from basic access, you know, with broadband to wearables to even what's going to emerge in the 5G economy and what's going to be enabled through that. Continue to focus on some population and demographic shifts not just that it's happening, but what the implications are for the future, also very important. And then entrepreneurship at a global level. So in Japan, entrepreneurship is becoming more important. It hasn't been part of their culture necessarily. You know, we're going to engage leaders in Australia around this conversation because this is economic development in rural. It is entrepreneurship. It's not going to be a traditional employer. It's not even going to be traditional full-time work. It's going to be the gig economy, it's going to be entrepreneurship, and it's going to be innovation. Love it. Okay, so to wrap up, I think if all the other guests think I missed an opportunity, if I didn't ask you some of the questions that you asked them that make them go, oh. (laughs) And so there's two of those. First, which I think should be maybe our warm-up for season three, is like, what does the futurist hat look like? Because... That's very interesting. I always kind of picture it as like the sci-fi type of like stuff coming out of it. (laughs) To me, it's like that cone-shaped wizard hat with like some sparkly stars and stuff. And and I know the students have even even some more interesting ideas. That is still a contest, you know. To me, that's a contest. contest. I think it's a contest who can come up with the best futurist hat. But anyways, okay, I digress. But so with your futurist hat on. What are some of the key megatrends that you want to make sure people understand are impacting our rural urban future and that we should really be preparing for? I think the technology and science piece, of course, are in the continued advancement in that. But I think sort of the evolution of humanity as well. We have a lot of our basic needs met. We'll continue to work on that in many places around the world. But then what comes next? What comes next if people aren't working full time? What comes next if People are wanting to feel more fulfilled and be healthier and more vital, and we need them to do that. And how do we piece this together? And how do we do this globally? Because I think some of the other interesting conversations we'll have are outside of humanity. How is all this affecting wildlife, ocean populations, flora and fauna? I think there's a natural resources piece that'll continue to grow, especially as a potential growing population consumes more. So the last question that makes people sigh or just flat out say, I shouldn't answer that, is parting words of wisdom. Well, I think, you know, parting words of wisdom for me would be for people to continue to create their own future and really look at their life through the lens of futurist. So as we see dynamic shifts in terms of employment opportunities that go away, we're going to see new ones emerge. 
So what does that look like for you? How can you tap into your strengths and create a strengths-based future for yourself that then impacts your community, but also the world? But I want to throw that back to you also, Caitlin. What are your words of wisdom that you'd like to leave our audience with? They all map to essentialism. So everyone, if you have not read that book, you need to do so immediately. A lot of what you have mentored me with, which is exactly what you said, what future do you want? You need to know what your desire is and go for that. And so I think that has resonated with me a ton and I've really put some thought into it and it's hard sometimes, but my parting words of wisdom today would be done is better than perfect. And this podcast is such a great example of that. If I had waited for our concept to be absolutely perfect, we wouldn't have launched yet. And we wouldn't be sitting here and have pulled together such an incredible group of people. So thank you to each and every one of our guests who have made this dream, not just a reality, but just plain fun. I mean, these people are just a pleasure to talk with. And I just also want to take a moment to thank everyone who is listening because we can more than justify continuing this show We have listeners from 45 of 50 states represented in our listenership, which obviously the competitive person in me is going to call out, hey, Alaska, Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, and New Hampshire, y'all need to get on board. So there might be some targeting um, to those just so we can round out the 50. But those are my parting words of wisdom, Connie. I agree. Essentialism is awesome. But yeah, let's get those last five states. And we know you're out there, rural. We know I've met people from rural Alaska, Arkansas, especially those two states um, that are doing some amazing things. Well, and our listeners are definitely not just rural. I'm seeing a lot of Chicago, Austin, San Diego. So, I mean, I know it's, it's really cool to see such a good, good mix, but Obviously, Nebraska is coming in strong, and we really appreciate that. So, yeah, thank you, Nebraska. We love it. All right. Well, hey, Connie, thanks for coming on your own show. <laughs> well, hey, Caitlin, thanks for interviewing me and putting me on the hot seat. Thanks for listening to the Rural Futures Podcast. You can find us on social media at Rural Futures, and we hope you will share our show with your networks to raise awareness and bold thinking for rural areas across the country. 